Hello everybody, my name is Alex Marks and this is Young History, episode 43 on Eswatini. The capital is actually in two different places, one in Mbaben and Lobamba. This country is kind of an enclave within South Africa. It's entirely surrounded by South Africa and is bordered on the east by Mozambique. And the reason that it's not just part of Africa is fully to do with its history and different ethnic groups. And another thing that the British wouldn't like to acknowledge is the fact that it's way less developed and way less taken care of compared to South Africa, which has made it incredibly poor, made it very much in struggle, and there's a lot of different things with it. One of those being that it's actually the last absolute monarchy in all of Africa, and the king uses this power in many different ways, as I'll show you very soon. Um, one of the lowest ratios in the world of cars to people actually exists here, about 32 cars per 100 people, so less than a third of the people in the world in the country have a car and in conjunction with that there's actually a stat that says it's roughly 60 to 63 percent of the population lives off one dollar a day or less while the king lives extremely lavishly and in great royal palaces with the country's money so it's it's a very huge disparity of wealth within this country perhaps the worst in the entire world but the reason that is is because of who the king is and the system around the country, which was established with their history. So I'm not going to hold us up any longer so that we can actually get into this history and that we could learn about this country and try and pull something from why they are here because this country does have a very beautiful culture behind it. There's a lot of, despite it not being a huge nation with under a million people in it, it still has a lot going for it on the cultural scale. So we're going to learn about its history and try and give these people some credit for all the things they do. So thank you all for being here. My name is Alex Marks. This is Young History, and this is Eswatini. Our origins can begin far, 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 far back around 110,000 years ago because that is when the oldest remains that have been found here were dated to. It was a man buried with next to some livestock and a few other things that with carbon dating the scientists were able to tell that, or archaeologists I guess, were able to tell that he was from an era at least 100,000 years ago. But the first people group that was here was the Kosan people and they remained in this land as mostly peaceful because they didn't have to kick anyone out to originally get here. They just had to deal with anyone that walked through the land just random nomads and small tribes that were passing through nobody had actually established a holding on this land until the Kosan people that would change around 1000 BC when the Bantu speakers arrived from the northwestern part of Africa the Bantu arriving is one of the major events in African history where this taller and different language speaking people from the northwest of Africa kind of pushed their way into the east south and then southwest of the continent and influenced the whole thing for its foreseeable future. And part of this was that they actually brought different ways to do things and this created a bunch of different cultures, a bunch of different clans, and even within the small land that Eswatini is, there was a creation of clans and there was a lot of fighting within this, just different wars between many different clans and tribes that were within the land that we know as Eswatini. The next people to arrive here would actually be the Nguni people, who actually arrived from Mozambique around the 16th century. And they were led by Nguane II. And following this, in Mozambique, Nguane III 
will actually come to this land with his people, the Swazi, who are the majority population within this land. They arrived in the late 1700s, and the original home of these people, the Swazi, was the Pongola River Valley area of KwaZulu-Natal, which is in western and southern South Africa today. But it, but the thing that pushed them out was actually internal pressures from the way they're being treated, especially by the fact that a people group called the Ndwandwe were attacking them and forcing them to either leave the land or be subject to different rules, things that they didn't want to stand for. So it forced them into the Ezluwini Valley, which is in modern-day Eswatini. And the fact that so many people left with Ngwane III is the reason that the Swazi foothold became so tight here because a lot of them moved in and they pretty much became the ethnic majority like that. The next man to come into power would actually be the son of Ngwane III, who was Subhuza I. He's recognized as the first actual king of Eswatini, and he saw even more people migrate to the land from Mozambique, and he also made this big choice of actually avoiding war with the Zulu clan because they were an extremely powerful clan at the time and were pretty much thrashing anyone they came up against. They just had a very unique guerrilla-style fighting with better weapons, better training. It was a bigger part of their culture to be a better warrior tribe than it was for the Swazi, even though the Swazi were still a fighting people in their early history, but the Zulu likely would have washed them. So Sabuza avoided that, and he actually, in avoiding the Zulu, was able to kind of do his own kind of conquering. He actually led his people against the Sotho people, which now reside in Lesotho, which is another kind of enclave within South Africa. He kicked them out of their region of what would become Eswatini, and they pushed out any other tribes that were there, and they really established a great tight foothold in the area for the Swazi people. And he also became the premier king of the area, as it was very clear the Swazi was the strongest tribe. This led to, following his rule, he would once again pass the throne down to his son. This would be Mswati II who was the son of Sabusa, he became the next king, and his big achievement was that he led many expeditions far and wide, he expanded the territory as far as it ever did, and he captured a lot of hostages to hold his captives, he grabbed a lot of livestock, he did a lot of things that would make the country more profitable and make the Swazi people have a better day-to-day -day life. And he got the country to its largest borders at any point in its history. And the actual name, Eswatini, which used to be Swaziland, it's actually named after Mswati II because the name Eswatini literally means land of the Swazi. So Mswati and Swazi sounds very close when you say it. And because of that, they have held this name and even in the last few years changed from Swaziland to Eswatini because Eswatini is more leaning towards their language rather than saying Swaziland, which is from the time where they were under the British, which actually starts pretty soon here when in the early 1800s the Dutch Boers arrived and they started to take root here and they started to establish small settlements throughout Eswatini to kind of counter what was happening in greater South Africa with the British Empire taking over. And the British Empire saw this and of course said that they didn't want this to happen here either. So they came into this land, especially for the diamonds, and very quickly started to move towards taking it over. Because in 1881, there was a discussion within the region between the Swazi leaders, the Dutch, and the British to kind of help the region maintain autonomy. But this didn't last long as the British and Dutch started to break out into fighting very quickly when the first Anglo-Boer War happened, tensions got really high, nothing really was settled, so a second war happened, which is where the British would win, and by 1906, the country had already been a protectorate for a while after said war, and was shifted into a high commission territory of the British, and it's fully encapsulated into the British, but I said it before, but this land wasn't anywhere near as developed as South Africa was, it was very much poor, it was very unindustrialized, it wasn't used as a great trading post, 
and it wasn't hailed or respected in the same way it should have been. And this British rule, which was quite abusive, did last 62 years. And then an, an early level of self-government was granted in 1963, and by the year 1968, independence came fully. But even though this would sound like a good thing, it still wasn't. it still wasn't that great because... Not only was the country no longer going to get any little bits of aid from the British, because now it's no longer a part of British territory, it's just now fully left on its own, and it has all these problems that the British caused from the fact that they took away any ability for them to make money, because the British were, of course, harvesting their diamonds, using them for as workers, just using the land up instead of having it serve the people it belongs to. And this kind of distaste for what was happening would be reflected in the next leader, Subhuza II, who actually take power, because... Subhuza II would want to change things as he had been king for a long time. He's actually a king that was born into power because in this country it's directly handed down to the first son. Just like in like olden Europe and medieval stories we hear about in fairy tales. But after Mswati II died during a ritual dance, had a kind of an unexpected heart attack and passed away, it was in 1899 that the four-month-old Subhuza II would inherit power. And he would literally be king and treated as king and pampered as king his entire life until his death in 1982, where at that point he had ruled for 82 and a half years, making him the longest reigning monarch in recorded human history. Insane. And he had a lot to say about the British because he was very much already coming to age. He'd already been 60, 70 years old by the time independence came. And he said that he was going to start tearing apart the things that the British brought, which was this Western European influence of democracy and things of that sort, because it didn't reflect, quote unquote, the... Swazi way, and he reestablished the kingdom as an absolute monarchy, of course giving himself all the power and would eventually pass it down to his son, but he did do as much good as he could with his power. He helped with a lot of the education, health, and economic problems that were happening in the country, and he would keep this power and continue to try and change the country and influence it until his death came in 1982, where we would get to the current king, who is a walking piece of useless, selfish human garbage, King Mswati III. I normally try and stay neutral in history, but this guy's a piece of garbage. He's selfish. He's many things. I'm going to get into it right now. So he inherits power in 1983, and he is worth billions of dollars. Billions of dollars. He has a country's worth of hundreds of millions of dollars extra, and he has 15 wives. He lives like a king, just like you'd imagine in fairy tales, except in the modern age. So many cars, huge palaces, and all these multi-million dollar things. He has 120 BMWs. He has all these Rolls Royces. He buys them for his wives. He sends them on spending sprees with money that he inherited because he's never worked a fucking day in his life. He has inherited this money, which is the country's money from their industries. It all goes to him because he's the absolute king. It's literally like the way Mansa Musa was centuries ago when it was definitely a different thing. Like It was the culture rather than now where you're the only country in the world that's like this. So... Over 50% of his people are starving or are literally living off a dollar a day or less. And he's sitting in mansions, he's spoiling his 15 wives, he's spoiling his 27 children, I think it is. All of this shit, and it's it's just ridiculous. So this can be very much compared to Brunei, because at le- and the only reason I put him even worse is because Brunei, at least, the people seem to have some level of kind of accepting the way their sultan is. Um, and he's one of the richest men in the world, huge car collection, a bunch of ridiculous things that shouldn't be used, like the country's money shouldn't be used for. You have this giant lavish life just because you happen to come into power. And at least the people there seem to be accepting it, or at least the propaganda is so damn good that they 
are able to not challenge the king. It's kind of like North Korea. Like at least there's a level of the people aren't literally having an outcry for help and you're stepping on them because that's what Mswati III does. Literally, his people have had protests and he's just taken away the right to protest. People have tried to do journalism. Journalisms are shot or arrested and the police are ready to enforce it and the military is thrown onto people. Just a bunch of things that are ridiculous because of the way this country is and the way this king uses his power. And this came to a head really big in the 1990s when struggles with a huge drought nearly plunged the entire country into a giant famine, except, of course, for the royals. And this led to protests throughout the 90s calling for a change to the system. It called for more foreign aid. It called for all these things. And the protesters ended up getting violent because after a few years of it, from 91 to 92, nothing was changing. So in 93, 94, the prime minister burned the Prime Minister's home was burned to the ground, and so were a few of the other officials of the country. But, of course, our great tyrant, Mswati III, didn't let any of this happen. He replied to any of these requests for change and help with force. He had the military and police use live, live ammunition rounds on unarmed protesters. Young men and women were killed in this. There was at least 30 people who actually died who just wanted to protest for a better life within their country. And journalists were quite literally tortured for any work they did. Network connection was limited within the country, so it's hard to broadcast out help to the greater world. And you have to use VPNs and stuff to get onto the internet and YouTube, just like you do in China, which is another country that's extremely restrictive and, in my eyes, ridiculous. And anytime the king is interviewed about any of this, he refuses to put out any statements on it. He refuses to acknowledge it and he just sits on his throne eating grapes and driving Rolls Royces like absolutely nothing is happening. So I said it before, I said it again, Mswati the third, piece of absolute garbage. Don't care what blowback I get for that. It's the truth. You're a tyrant in the twenty first century and it's the only country in the world that I can like look at as this aggressive where technically Vatican City is an absolute monarchy, but there's like eight hundred people there and they're all like ministers of the Catholic Church. So that's nothing. And then like you look like Brunei, and even there, like, the people are living at a pretty high standard overall. The economy's doing pretty good. They have pretty good benefits with free healthcare and stuff. Here, it's literally, if you are not in the absolute upper class, you are starving every day, and that's just sickening to me. And pretty much good way to sum up the present state of the country, where almost all the country is insanely poor, except for that upper, upper class that has either a company in Eswatini or is royalty itself. They're very rich. Everyone else, literally starving. So the freedom in this country is slim to none. The ability for class mobility, also non-existence, and the only thing keeping the people surviving each day is the food programs that have gotten into the country, and there has even been a thing where the Red Cross was supposed to be able to give an extra couple millions of dollars extra to this country to use for solving food insecurity and things of that sort, but they literally couldn't because of the legalities around it because the king decided to buy his own like Boeing jet with the country's money, and this kind of pushed him out of a bracket of being poor enough to qualify for this aid so it's just sickening and the king was very well aware of this so like i said i'm swatty the third piece of walking garbage and truly that's what the country is right now but i'm gonna leave it with something good one thing they have every year that's very unique to their culture it's called the reed dance ceremony and in local language they call it umhalanga it's an annual ceremony held in Eswatini where thousands of unmarried or childless Swazi girls and women travel to the Ludzadinzi Royal Village region to learn a lot of lessons and celebrate who they are because AIDS was a very huge pandemic throughout all of Africa and it hit Eswatini really, really hard. So now the education and culture around it has changed where young women are being taught very specifically that their bodies are beautiful and that it's a very virtuous, royal, and sacred thing for them to be giving their bodies up for sex. So this 
ceremony is a lot to do with that, where the elder women teach a lot of lessons to these young girls about how to preserve their body, how to keep themselves safe if they are to have sex. And the biggest part of it is actually that all the all the young girls do this very big reed dance and ritual, which is to signify the virtue of their bodies and that they will hold off on for they will hold off on having sex until they get married. And this is to preserve their virginity, preserve their virtue, which people can look at in any way and have any feelings about. But but the reason for it is so that these girls know that they shouldn't be having unprotected sex. They shouldn't be letting guys manipulate them for it because no matter where you go in the world, dudes are going to be dudes and guys have this endless desire to have sex. And especially in these countries where there's so much less education around and the culture just being different around age of consent and things like that. I mean, in... Africa, if you just go a couple places up north, if you're in the Central African Republic, it's common practice for 12 to 13-year-old girls to be married to 40, 50-year-old men, which we in the West look at as awful, but there's just different cultures, and here, a culture like that could very easily emerge because there's so many girls that are in need of something, and a man could come and very easily take advantage of them. So this whole ceremony is built around building these girls up to understand that they should have respect, dignity, good morals, and all these things, so they're building up a strong foundation to become a great woman and hold on to the fact that their body and having sex is a big thing. It isn't just something you should go around and do, and it's dangerous as well to just go around and do in a country where AIDS is so prominent and in a place where the balance of power is so high between rich men and poor people, or just men in general and women. And there's also a performance within this reed ceremony dance where they actually gather all the girls and women together and they pledge allegiance to the queen mother who is kind of like the second most hailed person in the country with um underneath the king mswati the third and with that that's pretty much us wrapping it up that's where we want to be with this and truly it's it's just heartbreaking it's a terrible story of this country despite them having been through so much in their past that was full of glory and surviving a lot of things they have gotten to a place now where they're just in a deep struggle. They're dealing with a lot. They're dealing with people that are just having to be born into power and have used it for the wrong things, and it's just sickening. And the fa- and nobody talks about it enough, but a big part of this is the British, who put all this money into South Africa and pushing them to be this great colony within Africa. But when it came to Eswatini, they didn't do the same thing because it wasn't valuable to them. But any value that the country had, they took for themselves and then left them high and dry when the time came. So this country has just been the victim of a lot of very selfish people taking all the power and using it for the wrong things. And with that, I want to leave it the way I always like to leave it, which is kind of with a mindset to take away or a lesson. And in this country, it's going to be hold on to what you can. This country does not have a lot of great things that you can say when you look at it on the scale of how it's doing, how its economics are doing, how its people are living, its freedom, anything like that. They don't have a lot going for them. They're poor. They're struggling to get through day to day. They're starving, and they don't have the rights to stand up to the government that has made them this way. And because of that, they have to hold on to what they need to. For a lot of them, it's this read dance ceremony that happens every year, or it's the lessons the adults teach their children. It's just the little things that get them by day to day to day. And it's just tough, and it's tough for them, but they're still pushing through. These people are nobody's. Very few people are actually giving up. Very few people are succumbing to the things that they're around them people are fighting every day to get that one meal to get whatever money they can to feed their family and feed themselves and i say to look at that and apply it to yourself i really hope that anyone listening to this their struggle can be mirrored to resemble this but does it resemble it any way where you're struggling for food or a home or living you're struggling with something that's much more first world problem something internal something that goes beyond your needs being met 
your basic needs being met, but you can apply the way they're handling themselves to you, where if you're going through a terrible time, a horrible heartbreak, death in the family, things are falling apart around you, hold on to what you can. If you're a guitarist and you just went through a breakup and your mother died, play your guitar. If you're a singer and something similar happened, sing. If you're a podcaster and whatever is happening in your life is just terrible, sit down behind a mic, record a few things, and just keep it going because those things that you have that are your passions or your escapes, you should use them in these tough moments and hold on to them. For the people of Eswatini, it is this re-dance ceremony, as I said, and for you, it can be whatever. For a lot of guys, it's the gym. For girls, it can be that or confiding in friends or going out and doing something they enjoy. No matter how terrible things are, there's going to be something that isn't a part of it falling apart. And whatever that something is, just keep doing it if it's important to you. If it's something that makes you feel liberated, it's something you care about. Whatever that thing is, just do it because you only have so much to hold on to in those dark times. We're all going to go through some dark shit. I hope for you that it's not huge food insecurity and barely getting through the day and your children starving. I hope that if you are to go through a struggle, it is just heartbreak or a hard death in the family or things that are just going to naturally happen in life. But no matter what the struggle is, there will be something you have in your life that you care about that doesn't fall apart in that struggle. And whatever that thing is, hold on to it tight, embrace it, and let it get you through to the time when this struggle is no longer what you're going through. So with that, I'm just going to leave it. I don't want to say any more to ruin what we pulled from this country. And all we can do is wish these Swazi people and all the other ethnic groups, the Zulu, and anyone else within Eswatini the absolute best and hope that things change, hope that there's something on a foreign level that countries can do to help them but it's a struggle it's a very tough time right now and let's just thank them for their history and try and pull that lesson that we just got and apply it to our lives because we're lucky enough to not have to go through the things they're going through in a country that is so restricted and so absolute in the way they are so thank you all for being here and one last time my name is alex marks this is young history and that was eswatini y'all have a good one